Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy, sitting to my left is Floki, who has usually just done a gigantic shit in his enclosure. <laughs> right before we record, every single time, he's going to have to live with it for the next two hours now. And uh, yeah, sitting across from me, as usual, is Liam. How's it going, Macy? Yeah, yeah, I'm good, man. Yeah, still on holiday for the next few days, and I think it's going to be quite a baker in Blighty, so got to strap in. Indeed, mate, indeed. Uh, yeah, a little article to start off with. I uh, was trying to do a little bit more film news recently, seeing as everything's booting back up. And that is actually the point of this article. This is um, six movies that have resumed production after coronavirus. Mm. So everything started to boot back up again. I thought we'd go through these and see whether we were excited about them or not. Cool. So how long has it been since we talked about films in production? Uh, I think it's been a considerable while. Since March, at least, yeah, right? Yeah, at least, yeah. We're a good, I think, 15 episodes since <coughs> last talked about something in production. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's go through these then and then see if we're excited or not. I mean, big one to start off with, Avatar 2. I wasn't even aware of it being in production, so... Yeah, James Cameron has been threatening the film industry with this for some time. Uh, I wasn't a big fan of the original, were you? No, not really. I thought everyone said, oh, well, you know, the plot, the plot's not great, but it looks fantastic. Mm-hmm. I didn't even think it looked that good. Wasn't there some, you know, I actually never bothered to substantiate whether or not it was an urban myth, but heard little tales going around of people who had gone to see Avatar and they were so overwhelmed with grief at what they saw as a perfect world depicted on screen that they knew they'd never live in, so they ended up committing suicide. Yeah, that, well, that's <laughs> almost definitely bollocks. It? <laughs> it, got, it got pressed for quite a while. Though. How that bad was... does your life have to be where you look at Avatar and go, oh, God, that's the best thing I'll ever you see? You may as well have not been born in the first place if you're going to do that. So you know, Think of all the films they've missed in the meantime that were better. Right? <laughs> Absolutely horrendous. But no, the answer to that is no, no, no. Uh, yeah, well, he's planning five parts to the Avatar series. Oh, for Christ's sake. So we've got a lot of this to review. I mean, how many hours of our lives are we going to fucking waste on this? Uh, at least the audience won't have to. We, I mean, honestly, I thought Avatar was extremely underwhelming. I don't predict anything better for the sequel. Rumoured to be called Avatar 2 The Way of Water because it's supposed to be set underwater this time. Uh, and they've released one production still, which is, would you believe it, entirely green screen. So, yeah, plenty to give away there, guys. I'm sure that's going to be CGI trash. sound overwhelmingly bland at all. What happened to when James Cameron used to make good movies? I don't I mean, know, mate. Terminator 2, Aliens. I think there's quite... The, the Abyss, <clears throat> I mean... I think you could make an insert name here out of that question. You know, yeah. so, so many legends have kind of just gone way off kilter over the past, well, 20 odd years. It's just... Sad thing. Well, I mean, you know, as usual, it'll be a huge film, so um, Liam will probably end up reviewing it. So good luck on that one, mate. Well, you know. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I have to watch a lot of shitty TV. <laughs> uh, here's another Jurassic World Dominion. Mm. That's um, probably, uh, well, it's this is a, quite an old article now, actually. We're going back to late June. Um, what we stay 6th of August so these films have presumably got a fair way ahead from when this article was made we actually watched I mean I watched it at the cinema when it first came out and we actually watched together recently um, Jurassic World what was the second one called again Jurassic World Dinosaur in a Haunted House yeah pretty much something like that yeah which is a bizarre film because the first half of it is a Jurassic Park feature and then the second half is literally it's like Haunted House Dinosaur chases you through uh, like large estate corridors, which is really, really weird, weird production, I thought. Well, you know, it, this is one of those instances where if you hadn't reminded me of that, I would have completely forgotten that we sat down and watched it. Yeah, I actually went to the cinema for that one. but um, The same day that I went to see Hereditary. Yeah, I think you may have got the better now that, now, that. Yeah, see, Hereditary's memorable. It wasn't something you could have taken your daughter to by any stretch of the mm. imagination, but... Well, I mean, you could have it, just maybe social services. Well, she, <laughs> she did burst into tears at a sad bit in Jurassic World, whatever it was. So hereditary, I mean, God knows. I think we've had to <laughs> pry off the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, that's that's shooting at the moment. I don't have big hopes for it. Um, I loved, by the way, that in the second one, uh, Jeff Goldblum featured prominently in the um, trailer. And in the film, he's actually only in it for two minutes at the start and two minutes at the end. So that was an easy day for Jeff, wasn't it? It's misling bosses, the studios and their marketeers. Uh, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis film starring Tom Hanks, uh, as yet untitled, I presume, Elvis. Okay, that sounds a little bit more interesting than the ones you've mentioned so far. 
Yeah, this one had to halt because, uh, well, Tom Hanks got coronavirus. Yeah. So that'll do it. Yeah, um, currently untitled movie. We'll see Hanks portray Presley's longstanding and famously tough manager, Colonel Tom Parker. Uh, Austin Butler will play the young king of rock and roll. So That, that sounds really promising. I mean, <clears throat> Tom Hanks is pretty reliable, as we've discussed many times before. Baz Luhrmann, I liked his adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, can't really think of a huge number of his other films. Did you ever story, see but... the um, made-for-television Elvis biopic where he's played by Kurt Russell? No, I remember you telling me about it. Though. He came out in 1979, and if I'm not mistaken, it was directed by John Carpenter. My oh, dad... oh, really? Wow. Yeah, my dad first showed it to me. I remember, I remember it being very good. Wow, okay. Yeah, yeah, Kurt, Kurt played the king in... Uh, and one that I would say is memorable, but very underrated. So, so what year was this then? 1979. 79, right? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, uh, make, make the television. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, I remember it being like uh, pretty damn good, actually. I, there's a great biopic <clears throat> there somewhere. Um, perhaps Basil Lerman can find it. We shall see. Yeah, possibly. We have uh, Mission Impossible 7. Mission Impossible 7. Mission Impossible 7. 7? Yeah. Jeez, Christ. Yeah, I know. Uh... Actor Simon Pegg, who played Benji Dye in the franchise, told Variety it will begin with the outdoor star. I'm, I'm actually bored with my own article. <laughs> yeah, but Mission Impossible, I liked the first one. I thought the first one was good. And I watched rewatched it recently, actually, and it holds up very, very nicely. Everything after that has been sort of, especially the weird John Woo one with the motorbikes in midair and the doves and all that shit. What's the one where the villain is Philip Seymour Hoffman? Is that number two? It might be two, yeah. Yeah. They're, they all sort of blend into one film, <clears> I think. One bad, long film. Well, it's just, you know... And the whole gimmick with the... They've got incredibly lifelike masks so they can pull off masks. I remember two had, like, people pulling masks off masks off masks to the point where your brain just goes, I, I can't follow it and I don't care to either. Right. That's just... But, yeah, it's just, you know, another instalment of Tom Cruise always drinking from the fountain of youth and never seeming to lose his fighting ability. Yeah. Still, still has the same agility that he did in 1990... What was it, six despite the fact that he's almost <coughs> 60 years old. I do seem to remember him discussing that because he tries to uh, top himself with more insane stunts <laughs> in every film, that he wants to... It'd be good if he tried to top himself <laughs> with insane stunts. Yeah, maybe we'd stop getting these fucking Mission Impossible. But he wanted to do whatever the next Mission Impossible was, he wanted to do a stunt in space because no one's filmed in space <clears> for a, a motion picture before. Oh, God, all right, show off. Yeah, I... I, I yeah. <clears throat> They're just bored with that, completely bored. <laughs> Speaking of things we're bored of, uh, live-action Disney remakes. The next one on the list is The Little Mermaid. Sorry, <laughs> Halle, ba- Halle Bailey. Sorry, I was about to say Halle Berry. Halle Bailey and Melissa McCarthy. Uh, it was due to start filming uh, a week before London lockdown in March. We were saying the um, the live-action Mulan, that did look promising. I think we were saying not so long ago, but... yeah. With the, yeah, as far as all that's concerned, I'm not really um, chomping at the big stack. No, no, me neither, I have to say. And here's one, actually, we have both been interested in. Well, I have been interested <coughs> in, anyway. And this is the new Batman movie. Oh, Arpats. Yeah, presumably just called Batman. I've been looking for an Arpats performance that I actually like, and I've got a feeling maybe <laughs> from the production stills I've seen <coughs> this, they seem to be going in a very different direction with it stylistically. <coughs> Which gives me hope that... Because, I mean, the Batman comics, they've gone through so many different sort of phases of Batman. And it'd be nice to do something that's far away from the traditional Batman. And from the production stills, it does look like they might be going in an, at least an interesting artistic direction. Yeah, well, you know, as I said before, they said the same thing about uh, Ledger when he was originally cast as the Joker. Yeah, yeah. Right, so, I mean, a lot of people are a bit like, oh, my God, all Pats is Batman, but, you know, you never know. Yeah, so uh, six big films there, and we're only really interested in two of them. <coughs> so there you go. We'll watch them all as usual, but yeah, I don't have much hope for Avatar 2 or Mission Impossible 7. <coughs> what I'd really like is some original fucking ideas, please. That'd be nice. We can't have run out at this point. It's only 2020. We've only been making films in the past. Well, it, yeah, well, and it also it's getting, um, it's getting over closer in the weeks that I think I'm finally going to be able to actually watch and review and talk about with you, so that's good. Yeah, because it's scheduled for release on the twenty sixth. Have you been back to the cinema yet? No, since they've been open. No? no, I haven't actually. No, have you? No. Um, I was wondering what's your reasoning behind that. Is it simply because there's nothing in the cinema you want to see? Is it because of safety concerns or a combination of the two? I'll have to hold my hands up and admit it's more to do with the fact that there's 
nothing that I'm itching to go and see right now. Nothing that you can't get over streaming services anyway. Absolutely. Oh, no, tell it, tell it like there is one thing that I haven't, that is yet to be released on VOD, if at all, this year, but I think it is out of the Odeon. And that's the new Russell Crowe film, Unhinged. Oh, right. That looks hilarious. He plays... A... That's just a description of Russell Crowe, <clears throat> isn't it? <laughs> yeah, he just he plays a psychopathic motorist and it's a sort of one woman's... You know, they, she gets involved in a road rage altercation with him. And, uh, yeah, Russell Crowe is this incredibly vindictive motorist who stalks her and makes her life a living nightmare. But just the stills that I've seen of him just look hilarious. Yeah. So I think, you know, I actually looked on the Odeon website to check for uh, times at, you know, the most, the, the one that's closest to us, but I didn't find anything screening um, sort of this week or next We're week. We're still in that halfway house thing, are we? Where I think, I think studios are a bit nervy about releasing back in. I think our nearest Odeon is only opening uh, like a sort of a few days of the week, yeah. two, three days of the week. And from, unless I haven't looked hard enough, they seem to be arbitrary openings. <laughs> yeah, but when they can get the staff. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, it seems that way, unfortunately. Okie dokie, then well, let's crack on with our usual order of business. Let's do some film reviews. Uh, as usual, Liam, you've got a couple this week. As usual, uh, pick whichever one you like. Yeah, so I've got a couple of new ones here. The first one it was actually released on DirecTV Cinema last month, but is going to get a wider VOD release on the 14th. Is a new one called The Silencing. This is from a Belgian director named Robin Prompt who had his debut film with the Arden in 2015, which wasn't that much to write home about, unfortunately. Well, in the silencing, he's going with a lot of bankability here because he got uh, Nikolai Kostovoldu in the... Oh, Jamie Lannister. Jamie Lannister, as everyone would know him, who has delivered extremely good performances in many other works, I think, as well. And he's just... I always um, I always invest trust when Waldo's in something. He's extraordinarily good-looking. He's well. an incredibly handsome man, and he is... He does have organic charisma. He's a, he is a good actor as well. I, I enjoy his performances. Really do. Like I think it was night night uh, yeah night watch. I was about to say night watching, but night watch nineteen ninety four. His breakthrough role, a Danish film uh, that got an abysmal American remake. <laughs> it was you know I think was he in nineteen ninety four? I think he would have been about twenty four. And he's yeah, it's very good, very good from very good as as a youngster. But anyway, I digress. So in the silencing, we're in uh, the backwoods of the United States. The film was shot on location in Canada, but I think it's supposed to be somewhere in Appalachia or the Ozarks. Nikolai Kostovaldu plays a man named Rayburn Swanson. And Rayburn Swanson is an ex-hunter who, over the years, he's had a crisis of conscience and he's turned his woodland property, the enormous forest that surrounds his home, he's turned it into a wildlife sanctuary and he's hung up his guns with the exception of going and scaring hunters off of his land. And it's one of these, like, I think in the opening, one of them goes, you know, he finds a couple of these guys trying to hunt deer and he basically says, fuck off. And they go, oh, the great Rayburn Swanson turned into a hippie and all that. It's like people change, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, he's a reformed character. Right. Presumably a moral change of heart? Yes. Yeah. And, well, that... Well, a moral change of heart, it seems, but then it, it's also revealed very early on that he's got quite the crippling addiction to hard booze, mm. namely whiskey and vodka and the like. And then we progress to find out even more that the reason for this is that five years earlier, his preteen daughter, Gwen, went missing ostensibly abducted, but nobody knows. She's just vanished without a trace. And so he has been plunged into despair ever since, as you would guess. So while Rayburn is kind of milling, milling around, debating suicide, getting progressively more drunker, trying to protect the animals on his forest land from people going around poaching and hunting, in the surrounding town, the local police are finding the bodies of young women strewn all across the place, like in the forest, by brooks and lakes, etc., etc., badly decomposing, and they've got ligature marks around their arms and necks, so it looks like there might be a serial killer on the loose. And the uh, the chief of police is um, Blackhawk, who's played, you know uh, Zahn McLaughlin? Quite a strange name for a Native American actor, but he's of, he's of Irish stock. He was in the TV show Fargo, and he's in Doctor Sleep as well. Quite a sort of ferocious um, native diminutive guy, right? No, no, no well, not offhand. Well, he, yeah, well, he, he plays the uh, chief of police uh, named Blackhawk. So you know, nice. Oh, I'm looking at a picture of him now. I do know him. Yes. No, nice bit of stereotyping there. I thought Chief Blackhawk. 
the local police. See, I hate saying Chief Blackhawk as well because that sounds like he's chief of a tribe. But he's he chief, does, yeah. But he's actually chief of the local police. Right. So that's annoying. Some sort of meta comment there? Or? I don't... Nah, this film ain't smart enough for that. Right, okay. <laughs> but um, he assigns Officer Gustafsson, played by Annabelle Wallace, to investigate the murders. So Rayburn, Nikolai... He hears about the bodies that are turning up and he demands that the police allow him into the morgue to see if one of these corpses is, in fact, his missing daughter, Gwen, so he can get some closure after all these years. But he has a look around and she's nowhere to be seen. Then, one night, when he's looking on his property surveillance cameras to you know, see that everything's tickety-boo and there's no more hunters running around everywhere, he sees what looks like an utterly terrified young woman running through the forest in torn, raggedy clothing, scrambling to get away from something. And that something is a figure in a ghillie suit, armed with, I thought it was a bow and arrow, but upon further research, it's some sort of spear, like spear projectile device called an atatool or an atatool or something like that. You went on me. Yeah, Yeah, no, likewise. But um, he sees this occurring on the cameras, and he runs out to confront this nefarious camouflage loony and uh, very nearly gets killed in the process. And then he's got this, this petrified young woman just, you know, there. Essentially, I think she's mute. And he contacts the police going, what, what the fuck is going on here? You know, I just, I need some help. And then he starts to put two and two together. You know, my daughter went missing not far from the property. Is this freak who I've just rescued someone from? Is is this but does this person have a hand in what happened to my daughter five years ago? And so Officer Gustafson gets involved, they start investigating, loads of surprises and weird narrative developments um ensue. Officer Gustafson, there's a little subplot with her where she is trying to she has to bail her younger brother constantly out of trouble out of trouble. Her bro- younger brother named Brooks is played by an actor called Hero Finds Taffin. Okay. Which is uh, I think I mean that's I mean that kind of had my jaw dropping more than fucking what was it on Peep Show Talk and all of the Nimrods. <laughs> yeah. you know? But um yeah, so there's that little subplot going on. Anyway, so the silencing. This film has got it atmospherically right because it's doing essentially the kind of country noir sort of medium, uh, you know, similar to the likes of films like Winter's Bone. Mm-hmm. It looks nice. The soundtrack is decent enough. It gets the atmosphere right. Jesus fucking Christ, was this a misfire? <laughs> oh, go on then, how? Apart from Costa Valdu's performance, which is actually relatively convincing, this was one of the most shoddily constructed, boring films that I have seen in quite a long time. Annabelle Wallace, as Officer Gustafson, is terrible. She is supposed to be doing that, you know, the hard-nosed cop who, you know, has some, some conflicts of interest when investigating the case, but she wants to help Rayburn, but then she's not sure if she can trust Rayburn because he's all mentally fucked up. But her performance is honestly a lump of wood. I say in the in the type review as well, it's an utter lump of wood. And not only is, you know, it's 95 minutes long, and another thing that I mentioned in the blog review, it's 95 minutes long, for those 95 minutes barely anything happens, barely anything in, you know, a fundamental sense. It's not like brain candy, it's lacking brain candy stimulation and that it's dialogue-driven. That's not the complaint. The complaint is that nothing, 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 nothing happens. Again, you know, it's an instance where the, I think the filmmaking team are convinced that things are happening as the celluloid is rolling, but nothing is actually happening. <laughs> Characters, certain characters, they do things, and you go, okay, what the fuck have you just done that for? Hmm. Well, that exposition makes very little sense. I'm sure you're going to give this some addressing before the film ends. Oh, no. Oh, no, you're not. So this completely glaringly ridiculous thing that makes no sense in context that this character, this focal character just did, you're not going to address that at all, despite the fact that it completely jars the momentum of the script. Oh, well, great. Thanks for that. That's really good. It's supposed to be a mystery film. The reasons for everything that unfolds is just the most unimaginative and shitty and uninteresting uh, thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's just, it, it, this is 
this is one that really should have worked. And this is another thing I mentioned. This is one that I wanted to work because, as I said, it looks good. It sounds good. Um, there, it has, like, sort of decent diegesis in it. But it's just so fucking laborious. I remember I was talking about how uh, Amulet was such a slog to get through. This wasn't quite that bad, but it's a close second in terms of recent releases that I've watched in the past few weeks. It's just, um, you know, I've, my, the title of my blog review was, um, you know, not not even the Kingslayer can save this one. The Kingslayer can't save lethargic backwards thriller because it's true we try try as Nikolai Costa Waldo might he puts in some good effort but it's just it's everything that he has to work with around him it was just really it was just diabolically shit and I know that Robin Prompt has got him in uh, for reasons of bankability because I saw his first film The Arden and that wasn't very good as well I just don't think I'm willing to be proven wrong but I just don't think the guy is able to create and and visually depict a story very well. That's sort of a key skill as a filmmaker. Yes, I know it. it. Yeah, yeah, it is. And you know, and I'm I'm sorry about it. And I know that he's done his second film. It's sort of like being a baseball player and not being able to throw a ball. I just don't understand what they thought they were doing in this. And I mean, Costavaldo has been. You know, I liked him in. As I say, I liked him in Nightwatch, and you know, he, he had very good bit parts and stuff like Black Hawk Down. I thought he was calling shot cooler. You know, the guy. You know, everyone likes Nikolai Costa-Waldo because he's fucking good at what he does. And he, you know, so they had a, a single decent performance that belonged in something else. And, yeah, the silencing was just... Now, I, I'm trying to, been trying to think of... Well, I mean, I've already listed the things that I think are worthy of commendation. The look is good and the sound is good. Apart from that, there is literally nothing else. And it was just a, a completely and utterly appalling misfire. And I really reward people against going to see it. One to give a miss, then. One to give an absolute miss is shit. Okay, then. Well, let's do the uh, second review of the week, then. What have you got this time around? Yeah, so this time around, there's a slight improvement, but only slight. So we've got Mortal, which is a new film by Andre Overdahl, who was the guy behind Troll Hunter. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, this I mean, this got quite an interesting description at the very least, but it stars Nat Wolf, who looks creepily similar to his younger brother, Alex Wolf, who has a leading role in Hereditary. And I, um, I just thought it, I was seeing Alex Wolf in an impossible number of films, but it turns out that he actually has an older brother. <laughs> and uh, so Nat Wolf stars as Eric Bergeland, who is an American of Norwegian descent, who is just finds himself in Norway and the film opens with him in some woodlands making a fire and camping out with long shaggy hair looks like a sort of run-of-the-mill homeless individual and doesn't appear to be particularly well he looks very tired and, and ragged and he's got the shivers and he's walking across a country road one day when a group of Norwegian teens get out and start essentially just hassling him and pushing him around and saying like what are you doing here get out and um, one of them grabs him and Eric looks him in the eye and says, if you touch me, you're going to burn. And the guy scoffs it and he pushes him again. And then the pusher falls to the ground and drops dead. All the colours gone out of his face. His friends freak out, go, what the fuck? The local police get contacted. They pull Eric into the police station and it transpires that he's able to do things. He can essentially move matter just with, you know, what seems like a telekinetic ability. He can cause storms to um, rage, thunder and lightning, pissing down with rain. He can uh, make all the electrical implements in the building explode. He can make water essentially evaporate out of a glass by hovering his hand over it. And with a bit of digging... Uh, in which he is aided by a uh, police-appointed uh, psychoanalyst played by Eben Akerley, I think her name is. They trace his origins to Norse gods. So Eric is a young American man of Norwegian descent, and he is a descendant of the gods of Norse mythology. Right. And it's essentially doing... That's silly. Yes. And it's essentially, so it's essentially doing a sort of urban fantasy riff, if you like, because he is, as I said, he's a petrified young man and he he's aware that he has these powers and he has something of a loose idea of how they, you know, 
how he uh, engenders them, how he how he makes these things happen, essentially, the type of stimuli um, that cause, causes them to erupt, causes his powers to erupt. But um, he doesn't, you know, he's completely puzzled as to what is going on for most of the film. So it just deals with him and his burgeoning relationship with this young psychoanalytic lady, trying to evade the authorities, trying to... Um, discover more of his mysterious origins all the while on the run from the authorities and yeah several close calls with the authorities eric's powers go off and so you know people inadvertently get hurt and um there's lots of mad cgi storms and you know helicopters being downed with the power of his mind and etc etc um (laughs) Side by side, it's better than the silencing. <laughs> but um, in terms of, uh, you know, a, an individual film and its own merit, this one, well, number one, it's, there's nothing really memorable about this one either. But the reason that I wanted to bring it up, because they've open-ended it for a sequel. Uh-huh. So I have a feeling that this is going to be turned into, they're attempting to turn this into yet another franchise. Right. But if the first movie is anything to go by, I don't think it's going to be um, a particularly interesting or adventurous franchise. There are some cool moments in it. There's some, yeah, moderately entertaining, but yeah, all in all, again, I'm sorry about this, but this week I've got two completely and utterly forgettable ones. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, if you're interested in seeing Mortal as well, even if you're a big superhero fan and, you know, you think it might sound cool, you think they might maybe trying to run with a neat little take on the kind of superhero classical mythology genre don't because it's not. <laughs> that was short and sweet. Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, what? Well, I mean, if you have any questions to ask me about it, I can answer them. But no, I'm just looking at another review here entitled uh, "Depressing, Slow, and Boring." Is that accurate? Well, yes, it is accurate, and I'd like it to not be short and sweet because you know I always like you know us to get some some substantive run out of the things we discuss, but. I don't really know how many times I can say the acting is passable. It wasn't extremely entertaining. The special effects left a bit to be desired. And by the time everything... Oh, oh no, actually, I'll tell you what. I'll give you one thing. The ending did make me laugh my arse off. Oh, right. And it wasn't supposed to. Yes. <laughs> so the, the, the ending was absolutely hilarious. But no, apart from that... Um, I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't emotionally involved. Um, it just, it, yeah, it, it was just a really weird film. In that, on on paper, it sounded interesting, but uh, no, just a, yeah, just a, a whole lot, hot load of nothing, basically. So this is no the old guard. This is no. Oh no 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 fuck no! That actually had characterization. Actually, the old guard, I would say, actually made you care about the characters. Mm. Old guard was good popcorn. Because it did give you a ball to run with. I gave a shit about what was happening on the screen in The Old God, even though it is brain candy. It had a grip. It had a grip. And, you know, Charlie's Throng's performance was very good. In fact, all the performances were very good. It had a great, knowingly, you know, sort of malevolent, overdone British villain that worked extremely well. It had great fight choreography. It was interesting. The Old God did what it set out to do. Mortal... I don't even know what it's trying to do because, I mean, that, yeah, honestly, that ending, if you decide to watch it, that ending, I defy you to not piss yourself laughing at it because it is really funny. But yeah, it's just, uh, I don't know what it is. You know how um, in the rebooted James Bond franchise with Daniel Craig, you know, we've said before about how Quantum of Solace, you know, you watch it, but you're not really sure what it's about. Yeah. And it seems almost like it's a film made up of cutting room floor footage. Yeah, I, I, I've watched it a few times and I still can't, I can't grab the thread. More, yeah, more, Mortal sort of seems like they filmed a draft script, scripter rather, or it's like some kind of bizarre latter stage entry in some kind of franchise where we're supposed to know what's going on. That, that That's what it felt like because the, the emotional connection to the characters or any of the, event, the events transpiring in front of me, I did, there was nothing there. There was absolutely nothing there. There's no, yeah, the, another one where, I don't know, no element of the film 
was it didn't it never got its claws in at any point. And uh, yeah, so really, really funny ending. I really, I'd say, what if if they do a sequel to this, and that sequel has at least a couple of moments that generated the same reaction for me as the ending of the first movie did, I'll watch it. Okay. <laughs> but otherwise, yeah, which is which is obviously not what Andre Overdahl and Co are intending. But yeah, for my personal gratification, if it is, if it at least if a follow up at least has a couple of moments like that ending, I'll watch it because I'm always in I'm always in the mood for good comedy, intentional or otherwise. Sure. But no, no, Mortal is uh, nah, it's rubbish. <laughs> Fair enough. Two turns so, this week. Yeah, I'm sorry. I know that we try and bounce it up. I'm sorry, like to be so uh, negative, the you know the bringer of uh, negative media, but you know, uh, it's, I held out hope for them. Yeah. They both they both sounded cool and they both sucked. So. Sorry about that. <laughs> no worries. All right, that then. All right then. <laughs> that brings me on to my TV of the week, and this week I'm doing Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer. Yeah, I've been wanting to review this for a while, um, but because it was in the US, it's released on the TNT network, mm. and uh, Netflix has been releasing it in the UK on the same schedule mm. as TNT, so one episode a week which shows how spoiled we've become with streaming services in that I want all of my content now, please, mm. because it makes doing this show so much easier. If I can sit there and do four episodes in an evening, you know, it's easiest to crank out. So I've been following on with this for a while. Then I left it for a bit, let the episodes catch up, and now I've finished it. So this is, uh, well, it's the end of the fucking world, basically. It's awesome. an American post-apocalyptic dystopian thriller television drama series, to give it its full title, <laughs> uh, based on the um, film of the same name, directed by Bong Joon-ho of Parasite fame. Mm, yeah. uh, did you see the film? Well, Snowpiercer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so you're, you're sort of aware of the concept. Yeah, yeah, I like Snowpiercer. Cool, yeah, so I know, and originally it was based on a uh, 1982 French graphic novel, uh, Le Transpersonnage, which we had a debate about the pronunciation of earlier. I'm probably absolutely butchering it there, but then there's nothing new. Transpersonnage. Transpersonnage, yes. Apologies to our French. What's the French accent? <laughs> so, yeah, it's an adaptation of a film that was an adaptation of a graphic novel. Okay, so where are we with Snowpiercer? This starts out with an animated sequence that, and a nice bit of narration voiceover that essentially says, global warming went absolutely mental. Planet got far too hot. The world governments decided to uh, use um, like climate modification and attempts to fix it, and inadvertently shoved everything over the other way. So the entire Earth is starting to freeze, and basically people are being wiped out on mass. It's referred to in the show as uh, the big freeze, and everybody piles onto humanity's last hope, which is a gigantic train called Snowpiercer. 1,001 cars long, as the TV series constantly states and the film constantly stated as well. This train was created by a mysterious man named Mr. Wilford. And it's yeah, sort of a post-apocalyptic escape vehicle, basically runs a loop of the Earth over and over and over again in a, like a perpetual motion. It can't slow down, otherwise it would freeze. And it's got humanity's last hope on it. As everybody's piling onto the train, a large group of people that didn't have a ticket or any reason to be on the train bum rush it in an attempt to save themselves and end up managing to get onto the back. So these people then become what are known as tailies or tailors. Uh, they bum rush the train, get onto the back, and they are the lowest class. So this whole thing basically is a class analogy, and it's a very, very blunt on-the-nose class analogy. You've got first class, which is made up of the uh, world's billionaires and the world's richest. You have second class, sort of services the first class. You have third class, who didn't buy a ticket, but they got on on virtue of their um, ability to service the train. So they're, they're like the service class. They make sure everything runs properly. They have their own sort of slum shantytown carriages. And right at the very back, you have tailies, who are the underclass. If anything, I suppose they'd be the equivalent to the homeless population. Mm. So very, very blunt, on-the-nose social critique, which I'm sure was very interesting and pertinent in 1982. In 2020, is perhaps a little bit too blunt and obvious. But anyway, on with the plot. Uh, we find uh, David Diggs playing Andre Layton. Andre Layton, rather. Uh, Andre is at the back of the train with the tailies. He sneaks on with everybody else. And the tailies are, this is first episode stuff, they are 
gearing themselves up for something of a takeover, something of a cultural revolution. Every now and then, they try and move forward in the carriages on the train, you know, essentially try and bum rush forward and try and take themselves from territory because their living conditions are so terrible. Uh, they don't have any windows on their bit of the train. They are fed only with these uh, big blocks of sort of uh, black jelly. <clears throat> yeah, They're like nutritional. That's very much done in the film as well. I mean, so many similarities to the film. You do kind of wonder why it was made in the first place. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Andre Layton is gearing up with his friends to try and move forward from the tail. They've had one of their uh, membership has committed suicide and they're going to use that opportunity. Every time someone dies in the tail, you call hospitality and the guards down. The guards open the doors very briefly. They take the dead body out. And so they use this as an opportunity to try and move forward. As the doors open and they've got all their bits of metal and spears and things they've made, they're sort of gearing up ready. They're about to do the rush. And to their surprise... Andre is pulled out of the tail. They've got a, a, um, an excuse to move him upwards. And Andre doesn't know why. So they take him forward to third class and they put a hot meal in front of him. It's uh, tomato soup and grilled cheese. And your first clue here, actually, that David Diggs is a very good actor, is that when they put this meal in front of him, it's been seven years in terms of showtime, in terms of like how long it's been before he's had some actual food that wasn't black jelly. And he looks at this tomato soup and grilled cheese exactly like a man that hasn't been fed in seven years. I mean, David Diggs, honestly, is one of the good things about the show and an actor definitely to look out for. And he's most famous previously for um, being in the Hamilton musical <coughs> as, uh, I believe, Thomas Jefferson. I well, he was also in a very good independent film called Blind Spotting. Yeah, That's yeah, he's, he's, he's yeah. done a few bit of work. Yeah, he's good. A few works, but he's actually, um, especially in Snowpiercer, he actually shows quite a bit of range as well, which is quite nice. Mm. He's definitely... I'm really wrong on this sort of thing. Watch out for David. He's, he's going to be doing some very, very good stuff very soon. Anyway, he quickly learns that the reason they've pulled him out is because he used to be a homicide detective. And on the train, there has been a murder. And wouldn't you know it, it turns out that on this train of thousands and thousands of people, he is the only homicide detective on board. <laughs> now, as plot conceits go, that's a particularly stupid one because they've got things like aquariums for fish. They've got a cattle car for meat. They've got everything's been thought of on this, apart from the policing services, apparently. But it turns out Andre Layton is the only person on board that knows how to solve a crime, bizarrely. So it's not just any crime either. Somebody has been found murdered. They've had their limbs severed and um, their genitals removed. They have been castrated. Nice. So, yeah, they brought him forward to try and solve this murder. Now, this is the point where a lot of reviews have stopped. Hang on, that's your setup for the show. There is an interesting reveal made at the end of episode one. And if you've seen Snowpiercer, the film, you'll know what that reveal is. And some of the reviews have mentioned it, some of the reviews haven't. Now, what I was going to do was play a guessing game with you at this point to see whether you could guess one of the reveals of the show. But seeing as you've seen the film, do you know roughly what I'm talking about here? Is it something to do with the jelly? No, it's uh, it's Mr. Wilford. Right, okay. So Mr. Wilford's voice on the train is Jennifer Connolly playing uh, Melanie Cavill. She does the overtrain announcements. Uh, Mr. Wilford is a mysterious figure at the front of the train that nobody ever really gets to see. And you know what? I'm just going to go for it, okay? Because it's a first episode spoiler and it's a 10-episode show. And it's very, very important to the conceit of the show, so I'm just going to go for it. If you're super sensitive to spoilers, you might want to skip this bit. Uh, but Mr. Wilford is, of course not on the train. Mm. So it's a whole, obviously this is a bigger part of the big um, societal commentary that the show is trying to make as well, is that it's all a myth. It's the Wizard of Oz, basically. It's the man behind the curtain, except in this case, he's not even behind the curtain. It's purely a train running under the um, auspiciousness of a potential godlike figure that everybody praises. They even do signaling across their chest. You know how the Catholics do the left, right, up and down to make the sign of the cross? <clears throat> they do a sign of the W sign of the Mr. Wilford mm. thing. So it is also commenting on that whole idea that um, godlike figures and celebrity are motivators that hold people together and keep society working. So you've got all the society, society commentary there. Sorry if that's a bit too much of a spoiler for you, but like I said, it's an episode one spoiler. And it's one of the big conceits of the show because, of course, Andre Layton being a very good detective, as he works his way through the train and starts to figure out this murder, he also starts to figure out that perhaps the management of the train isn't what it initially seems. Mm. So there's plenty of high concept stuff going on here. As I said, a lot of it being on the nose. 
But what you really want to know, I suppose, is what Snowpiercer is like. And I've got mixed feelings about it. The world building is quite good. It looks quite nice. Uh, there's a nice contrast between the carriages. Obviously, the Tailies are living in absolute abject poverty and, and grimness, and that's done very nicely. Third class is, like I said, like a sort of slum shantytown kind of thing. Second class, you've got clubs, pubs, and bars, and everything gets a bit more upmarket. And first class is sort of a billionaire's paradise. So you've got all these different segments of the train, all these different sets, and they're all quite richly done. And you've got the engine car at the front as well, where the driver is sitting, where all the controls for the train are, which is very high-tech, futuristic spaceship kind of stuff. So there's a nice sort of variation in terms of set design. Uh, My problem with it initially, and especially the first few episodes, is it's very, very slow in a very dialogue-y kind of way. And I was watching, I was, it's one of those ones where I was starting to fall out with it because the concept is there, the ideas are interesting, the set design is there, the performances aren't bad in general, but the dialogue is just a little bit flat, a little bit stilted, a little bit uninteresting. I was really starting to fall out with it. Episode four ends with a um, surprise spoilerific moment, which I will not spoil for this podcast. After that moment, at the end of episode four, Episode five and six suddenly speed up massively. And it speeds up and speeds up and speeds up all the way to the end of the show, which I thought was quite nice. I mean, we're always complaining about pacing on this show. I think one of the problems with pacing when it comes to modern TV is that when you've got, when you know that audiences are prepared to binge watch things, then you kind of feel, I think, as a writer or as a showrunner, that you've got all the time in the world to sort of stretch things out. I remember um, Ian Glenn, who played uh, Jorah Mormont in Game of Thrones, saying one of the nice things about acting in Game of Thrones was that he's done a lot of film work. And when you're an actor working in film, you have to play really big because you've only got an hour and a half to two hours to show the audience the entirety of your character. Whereas when you've got season after season after season, you can be very subtle and you can show slow development. And that's the thing. That's one of the nice things about acting in such a big piece of work as Game of Thrones. I think it's sort of working against itself when it comes to a lot of shows pacing these days. Because they go, oh, well, we've got 10 episodes to get through this, so we might as well take our time. You can only really take your time, though, if there's enough of an enthralling, gripping thing there to keep the audience on side. And for the first few episodes, it started out quite interesting, and then it sort of sagged and drooped. What I am pleased to say is, round about the middle, it actually starts to pick up pace. It's almost to overuse a train analogy. It's like the train's going uphill at the start right, and then yeah, it plateaus yeah. out and then it starts to <clears> run towards its conclusion so if like me you start watching the first few episodes and go eh this is okay but I don't know if it's going anywhere like around about episode 3 episode 4 I thought it would run out of ideas as well but it hadn't um, it does expound a little bit further than the film does and I've only read bits of the graphic novels but I think it goes a little bit further than that as well so I mean there's good stuff to get out of Snowpiercer uh, as I said David Diggs I think is a great actor and I'm really looking forward to seeing what else he does, but he's doing really, really well in this. And it's one of his performances you can sort of cling on to and hang on to. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Jennifer Connelly as well as <clears throat> Melanie. Obviously, she is... Um, uh, if Mr. Wilford is a god, she is his earthly presence. Yeah. But she makes a, there's a lot of uh, sort of contextual stuff about the weight of leadership and making decisions and having to constantly balance things to try and keep society running. Again, all these analogies, they are a bit blunt. They are a bit brute force. You're sort of sitting there going, yeah, okay. I mean, it's subtext, but the subtext is it's barely under the surface. It's an inch below the water. It doesn't take a huge mind to suddenly see what sort of things they're shooting for here in terms of class warfare, etc. But as an overall piece of work, I think it's good. I'm pleased that, look, if you're going to fuck up the pacing with something, having it be too slow at the start, then speed up to be okay in the middle and then get faster and faster towards the end. If you're going to fuck it up, that's the best way to fuck it up. Far better that than to start off rip-roaring away. How many things have I talked about on this program where it sags in the middle and all your interest goes, and then by the time you get to the ending, you don't care? Yeah. That's the worst way of fucking up the pacing. Starting off slow and then gradually building your way up to something interesting ain't a bad way of doing things. There's not a lot more to say than that. I wish I sort of had something more on it. It's quite good. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's, there's nothing here that's going to blow your socks off. There's nothing here that's going to make you go, wow, Snowpiercer, you really need to check We're having out. a shit week this week. I know, it's a really low one, isn't it? Fucking, this, just, this just sort of happens occasionally. I wish I could get a bit more excited about it. You think <coughs> with all those concepts that it's playing with, 
And with the talent of acting that it's got and with the huge amount of backstory and the fact that it's done be- been done before. I mean, Bong Joon-ho is a... Um, He's an executive producer on the show as well. Mm-hmm. So in a way, this is sort of like his second bite of the cherry, which I think is a good thing because surely you're going to improve on what you made the first time around. I didn't think Snowpiercer was a particularly good film, but it, again, it was okay. It was... Um, Tilda Swinton, I thought, was pretty fucking good in it. Oh, it's not something I would rant and rave about, but, you know, as I said at the start, I, I like the film. Yeah. I think I think it's a good film. But it's a solid film, but... Um... I, I wouldn't call it like a, I wouldn't go for like the fucking modern masterpiece angle or anything. It's got so many sort of tropes for modern television as well. There's a, a, a overly graphical sex sequences, which against this Game of Thrones seems to be the de rigueur kind of things get your audience excited, except none of them particularly excited. Uh, there's a couple of shocking developments, although they're not necessarily that shocking. Like I said, there's a nice big one at the end of um, episode four, which is a good place to put it because I was falling out with the show at that point, and that suddenly made me want to go into the next episode because it sort of throws everything for a loop. Again, if you've seen the film or read the graphic novel, you'll probably uh, will have guessed what I'm talking about. It, it does a pretty good job. There's some uh, interesting faces in here. So there's um, Stephen Ogg as uh, Pike, who he's actually not in season one very much, but he's the guy that played um, Trevor in the GTA Five. Yeah, he was in uh, uh, Better Call Saul as well, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A great actor, although he's, he's only really in the first couple of episodes and then there's a plot conceit to um, put him away for a bit. And yeah, I, I, I just wish there was something more to grab onto. I wish I could sit here and tell the audience, hey, Snowpiercer, it's really, really worth doing. It's worth your time. I'd say it is worth your time, but it could have been more exciting. It could have been a bit more thrilling. It could just do, it all feels just a little bit hollow. <clears throat> just a little bit like everything's there. It's just not quite as engaging or as heart-pulling as you want it to be. But there is enough there to make you go, you know, I'll check out the next one. And by the time you get to the conclusion, it has sort of raised its game. So I do, apparently um, season two was mostly shot before the lockdown. So they're on schedule to release, but they're still on their schedule release. It's supposed to be coming out summer 2021. So you're still a year off. From the development at the end of the show, season two should be much more of a fully featured thing, I think, because there's a couple more twists and turns to the plot that open up some new angles to it. But you're going to have to get through season one to get there. How many episodes of season one? Ten. Ten. Yeah, and half of which I'd say you're going to struggle with, and the other half, providing you stick with it, there is a decent enough payoff that I'd say it was just about worth it. And then it ends and you go, oh, I can't wait for season two, except you're going to have to, because it's going to be a fucking year. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's all I really have to say. But as you said, we're having a bit of a low week this week. It's just not got the heart and the balls necessary to really, really engage you with it. It's almost there. It's like 80% of the way there. But I just wish it had something a little bit more thrilling, a little bit more dangerous about it. Oh, that's a shame, man. I mean, because, I mean, that that's the thing. I mean, as I said, I enjoyed the film. You know, yeah, conceptually, Snowpiercer is good. And, you know, going back to the films I mentioned, I think conceptually mortal. It sounds good on paper. You know, the silencing, you know, it's not particularly high high concept. It sounds good on paper, but it looks like we've just been ploughing through stuff that's, you, you know. know. We've had weeks where we've been ranting and raving about the brilliance of everything, I suppose, every now and then you're just going to get a dub one, aren't you? Yeah, it's a bit so, of a... So apologies to the audience, but that's what's out there at the moment. Yeah, we don't want these things to be demonized. No, but we're not going to lie to you. I'm amped up. I'm excited. Yeah. I want to make this a great podcast. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the content ain't there. The content ain't there. Stop letting us down, you bastard creators. Yeah, uh, but <laughs> it's, it's, Snowpiercer isn't bad. Anyway, if we'd had your two shitty films and then I went on to Cursed, then it really would be a bummer. <laughs> Snowpiercer is nowhere near as bad as Cursed. That's good. At least I would say it's actually worth doing. But don't go into it expecting the latest, greatest thing because it's not quite there. I hope season two fixes that. And by the way they ended season one, I think it might. Season one is very much, it's almost like the origin story more than anything else. Would you say in its entirety, it's a satisfying time killer? Yeah, providing providing you can stick with it. Providing you can stick with it. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. And if you do, I would say it's satisfying enough that you won't feel like your time was entirely wasted. That's so fair enough, yeah. Damning with faint praise, really, isn't it? But there you go. No, it's better than it being complete in our horseshit. Yeah. <laughs> Okie dokie, then. Well, let's see if we can pull this one back with a bit of trivia at the end. I know what will save us, Liam. What's that? Because I've done Norse mythology as our fucking trivia this week. Well, I can guarantee you that Norse mythology 
it, you know, just in and of itself will be a short sight more interesting than mortal. I'd like to point out as well, this is different to our Viking trivia that we've done. We haven't done the actual Norse mythology side of it. No, thing. we haven't. What else was I going to do on? Fucking trains. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've gotten plenty of new anoraks in the fan, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you never know, right? <laughs> but one thing that can save us above all else, I know people absolutely love it when I mispronounce things. And because we're doing Norse mythology, I mean, I'm just looking... And all the uh, red wiggly lines underneath my notes where they flagged it as, that's not a word. Oh, it is. <laughs> it is. It's just a Nordic word. And I'm going to have to try and pronounce it. So as usual, if we've got any Nordic listeners, I can only apologise in advance. <laughs> so here we go. I'm going to do my best, all right? I'm just going to, I'm going to go straight ahead and guess for it. So Norse mythology. One of Odin's names, Svior, meaning wisdom, provides the root for the name of the modern country of Sweden. Mm. Svior and Sweden. Very nice. Yes. Not much to say on that one. <laughs> God, we are struggling this week. Uh, <laughs> uh, as God of Thunder, Thor wielded uh, Mjolnir, the magical hammer created by expert dwarven blacksmiths Sindri and Broca. Uh, Vikings were known to wear amulets of Thor's hammer around their necks, but this tradition actually seems to have derived from the ancient Romans. Romans used to wear a symbol of Hercules' club around the neck, and that spread up through the Germanic tribes to Scandinavia, where it was adapted into something a bit more appropriate for the Vikings. Oh, well, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so little, you don't think of sort of the Romans and Scandinavian culture and the Norse myth being related, do you? Not really, no. But uh, the Vikings famously travelled massively, so presumably, well, we're talking, I guess, pre what you call Viking, but I guess there would have been that travel between Italy and uh, and the, uh, the the Scandinavian areas. Yeah, yeah. Freya was married to the god Ur, a god of no particular significance, but who is often conflated with Odin. Ur is almost never seen with Freya in Norse art. Rather, Freya is often depicted sitting in her hall, Sestrumina, crying tears of red gold for her missing husband, or riding out to look for him in a chariot drawn by a team of cats. A team of cats? Yeah, her chariot was led by cats. Bloody hell. Yeah. I don't know why. Let's hope not one of them was James Gordon. <laughs> and yeah, a little bit more on that, actually. Because Freya was associated with both marriage and cats, it was tradition among the Vikings to give cats to new brides on their wedding day. Not only did they have symbolic significance, they were considered useful creatures to have about and essential to running a good household. Wow. So there's some weird link there to uh, ancient Egyptian Yeah, yeah, as re- well. you know, re- reverence for cats. Weren't the cats supposed to be gods of the afterlife or something in uh, in Egyptian? Yeah, the, I think they are held as some um, incredibly significant animals in terms of mythology. But I'd never heard of it in terms of Norse mythology. Before. No, no, that's a new one on me as well. Well, similarly, Thor's chariot was pulled by two goats, Tangrisnir and Tangnostia. Thor has also been known to consume, resurrect and reconsume them. Once, Thor shared his meal with a peasant family. One of the children sucked the marrow out of a leg bone, and when Thor resurrected the goats the following morning, one of them was left lame. Oh, wow. So Thor used to eat his own goats. That pulled his chariot. That pulled his chariot. That sound like a very practical being. Yeah, that sounds kind of risky, wouldn't it? Each time you'd be sort of like, well, I hope this works. Okay, again. Otherwise... Yeah, they're Norse, they're nutters. <laughs> they're fucking, you know. <laughs> otherwise, we're walking. <laughs> uh, also on goats... The Vikings believe that a giant goat named Hero, whose udders... Hang on, that's written wrong. <laughs> I'll, I'll fix this one. The Vikings believe that a giant goat named Hurin, whose udders provided an endless supply of beer, awaited them in Valhalla upon their death. <laughs> the giant yeah. beer-providing goat. <laughs> I'm not, definitely not trying to mock, you know, because there are still, you know... I don't think there are many Norse polytheists left, are there? Well, there's got to be, there's got to be at least some... Oh, have we found a subject that we can't actually offend someone on? Well, there are still there are still plenty of Celtic polytheists about. I can tell you, so there, I reckon there must be some yeah, true. polytheists. Yeah, not that you know. It's not. I just I'm laughing because that just sounds awesome. And yeah, mad. A giant, <laughs> giant beer providing goats. Res- yeah, resurrecting goats that pull your chariots. Absolutely. Yeah, I think with Odin, isn't he only called Odin? I think within Scandinavia they refer to him as Votan. He's got lots and lots of different names. I think he's he's primarily referred to as Odin in the remainder of Europe when discussing Norse mythology. I think I know that we refer to him as Odin, but I think in 
within Scandinavia is called Votan. A lot of the uh, Norse gods <clears throat> as well appeared in many different forms. So there are many different names in terms of um, what forms they appeared in. But there was always that thing. It's done quite nicely in Vikings, actually, that a character turns up at one point that may well have been Odin visiting the tribe. Yeah, because uh, we were discussing troll hunting not too long ago on the podcast, and obviously the the fifty foot sort of or I feel was a hundred meter tall mountain troll. Yeah, they face the climax because he's a Jotnar. Yeah, and the uh, Jotuns are um, this is their Norse mythological giants that are believed to be uh, descendants of like a uh, Loki. Yeah, and Odin and stuff. So, did you did you see um, the ritual? No, no, no. Well, I think it was. From about three years ago, a bunch of British friends they go backpacking along the um, it was in Sweden, is it the King's Trail, the, the Konig's Trail, or something like that? And um, they get stalked by a particularly nasty Jotun. Yeah. So, yeah, it seems that you know, within the you know, the past couple of past few decades, um, yeah, Norse mythological villains are cropping up here and there, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is cool, you know, I quite like that in Norse mythology. <clears throat> The dwarves created a magical chain to shackle the wolf Fenrir. It was made of the sound of a cat's footfall, the beard of a woman, the roots of a mountain, bear's sinews, fish's breath, and bird's spittle. It is said that its creation is the reason why none of these things exist. So he used up all the uh, women's beards, uh, cat's footfalls. I've seen women with beards. Yeah. There's, There's some left. There's plenty in this town. <laughs> As since the 1970s, an emerging neo-paganist movement which celebrates traditional Norse religious beliefs, see there are people out there to offend, <laughs> has been tied to a number of white supremacist groups. These groups, which see Odinism as the rightful traditional religion of the Aryan race, Aryan race rather, are at odds with anti-racist neo-pagan groups like Troth, who wish to share their beliefs with everybody and tie no racial significance to them. Yeah, I think there's one group in the United States, they call something like a Treyu or a Taru. They're um, one of their head guys, I think his name's like Stephen, Stephen McLennan or something like that. And he's uh, he's a very strange guy. He's like a, he's a Norse polytheist. Yeah. And um, he believes that um, racial separatism is healthy, but he's got no time for um, neo-Nazis even though that they have some foundational similarity in the things they believe. Racist by proxy, is that? Yeah, I, I, I suppose maybe he's trying to get away with it by saying that he's not promoting... I'm not I'm not racist, but... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's um, yeah, very, very strange uh, coalescence of people there. Oh, I think I talked about this when we did Viking trivia <clears> for the... Um, I think we talked about The Last Kingdom. But I wanted to get some Norse runes tattooed on me. But the abs- <clears throat> the absolute last people that I want to be associated with are far right uh, extremists. Yeah, but there was um there was another one. Stop ruining it for everyone else. Well, yeah, D- David Lane. He was another um he, he was another American uh, white supremacist, and he was also a Norse polytheist. And he used to write these insane books. Uh, about um, white Americans becoming, you know, forcibly becoming a minority. And the um, they would refer to basically every other demographic of the United States, i.e. black people, uh, Latinos, uh, Native Americans, people of East Asian and South Asian descent. They would actually use the term, he would use the term in his literature, scralings, which is the Scandinavian word for barbarian or foreigner mm. that the 11th century Vikings who turned up in the Americas would use about Native Americans. So, like, just really, really, you know, just co- co-opting, you know, this rich mythological history for something that's just very, very fucking nasty. Yeah. It's a shame, really. It's no a big shame. Just to understate it. In 2015, construction <clears throat> began on the first Norse temple in almost 1,000 years. The temple, which was built in Reykjavik, Iceland, was built by members of an Oh My God, the pronunciation on this. This is a 13-letter word. And I'm going to go for it. Asatrafaleago, I think. That's it, Asatru. Okay, so that's relating to you. Yeah, Asatru, not Atreyu. Atreyu is something else, isn't it? Yeah. There's a band, as far as I'm aware. They're a pagan advocacy group. Current membership has tripled to 2,400 members in the last decade, making the temple very necessary for meetings and rituals. So perhaps Norse polytheism is in fact on the rise. 
So yes, yeah, the um, so yeah, not that I'm saying that the aforementioned American group have anything to do with these guys, but yeah, it is a Sarks group. So I, I, I think I looked up before what the significance of that was in relation to uh, Norse pagan uh, belief system, but I can't remember exactly what it is. But no, I'm definitely not trying to say that the group that you just mentioned has anything to do with these racist nutters <laughs> in the US. So. And uh, do you know who's a, apparently a distant relative of Thor? The Queen of England. What, Liz? Yeah. Okay, I'm interested in how this works out. According to early Germanic chroniclers, bullshit merchants, <laughs> <laughs> they trace the ancestry of uh, Cerdic of the Gawis, or Gawais, back to Odin, the father of the Norse gods. In turn, Elizabeth II is a descendant of Cerdic through the House of Wessex. Okay, I can... I can certainly... No, it's, it's bullshit. Yes. <laughs> but no I'm, no, I'm just wondering because obviously you can obviously conceptualise, you know, the empirical genealogy of Liz to... To a real-life person. To a real-life person. But this real-life person was, according to early German chroniclers, an ancestor of Odin. I'm just interested in the method in which they chronicled that. Yeah. <laughs> a demonstration somewhere would be nice. A lot of beer. <laughs> and some sort of, um, well... Rather some, you know, proto-hallucinogens. Yeah, well, <laughs> mushrooms were a thing, I know that. So, you know, a, a night of beer and mushrooms. Would they have made their living doing that sort of thing in that day? Yeah, well, I would have thought so, yeah. Jammy bastards. Yeah, 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 it's all right. No. I'd love to just, well, I mean, I suppose, well, if, if we are lucky, we will be chatting bollocks for a living, but chatting that kind of bollocks for a living is I mean, we've to talked, make it up as you fucking go along. We've talked before about how much harder it was to live in uh, times prior to ourselves, <laughs> mm. prior times prior to ours, rather. But in a sense, if you were a snake oil salesman in the sort of the pre-enlightenment times, God, it must have been easy. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, you just fucking make sh- yeah, just attain some status and make shit up. Well, I mean, it, uh, you know, I mean, take L. Ron, L. Ron Hubbard, who famously said, if you want to get filthy rich, create your own religion. Mm. He founded Dianetics and the Church of Scientology at a period in history when science still ha- was still yet to make some major discoveries about the solar system yeah. and about things like abiogenesis and even major developments in evolution. So he, he came along and, I mean, I imagine if he tried to do it now, he would still have some level of success. But the fact that he cropped up when he did, when there was still so much scientific ignorance about things, people, that was like fish in a barrel. And last one here. Thrym, the king of the giants once stole Thor's hammer and refused to return it unless he was given Freya's hand in marriage. Freya refused, so Thor disguised himself as Freya, married Thrym, stole back his hammer, and killed not only Thrym, but all of his wedding guests as well. What did they do? Oh, it's pure vengeance, I think, there. The Norse gods are a bit like that. Yeah, I know. Seems a bit... It's sort of mad, actually, how many of the gods, when you look back, so you look at like the Hellenic gods and Zeus and all that stuff, Norse gods, all these um, pre-Christianity religions. In fact, Christianity itself, when you look at the Old Testament stuff, just how brutal the gods were to their people. I remember Stephen Fry saying that he doesn't understand why people believe in the Christian god, because the Christian god makes so much less sense than the Hellenic gods, because the Christian god is supposed to be all kind, all knowing, all good. Whereas the Hellenic gods were, you know, they'd just murder you for fun, for sport. Yeah. And that seems a lot more realistic when I you look at the reality we live in. I think it was a stand-up of Stuart Lee where he is, um, he, he said that his, his kid, who was only about, you know, five at the time or something, came up to him after learning about the Norse gods at school. And Stuart Lee was like, my son came up to me and he goes, Dad, is Thor a goodie or a baddie? And I said to him, well, son, he's actually, he's neither a goodie or a baddie. That in the context of the narrative in which he exists, he is essentially a metaphorical force of nature who responds to stimuli around him um, in a way that's conducive to fables and you know such and, and the like. And his son said to him, "Yeah, I thought that might be the case." <laughs> <laughs> I'm paraphrasing that very badly there, but it was so. <laughs> right. Well, that brings us. I'm glad we finished on a high note. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That brings us to the end of this slightly depressing <laughs> podcast this week. Apologies, but not our fault. There is a lot of dross out there at the moment. Well, we're warning people against this. Sort yeah. Of stuff. And yeah, Snowpiercer. It, it ain't that bad, but yes, it's uh, it's not as good as it could have been, and that's always frustrating, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. 
Anyway, if you'd like to hear some slightly happier stuff, I'm looking at the stuff we've got for the next, the premium episode, actually, and I think we're going to do quite well. <laughs> so if you've been depressed by this and you'd like something to lighten up, please do consider donating to our Patreon. As usual, five bucks a month, four extra podcasts, and uh, yeah, many, many more things <clears> to discuss. Perhaps a cheerier one this week than the free one. If uh, you're a first-time listener by any chance, yeah. <laughs> I can promise you it, Sorry. Is, it is usually... It is usually a lot more fun and ebullient. We're not always this miserable. There is stuff no, we like. It's just that we have genuinely been watching stuff that is not very good. So, <laughs> Anyway, yeah, uh, thanks very much for listening, guys. And we hope to catch you over on the premium one. If not, we'll catch you on the free one next week. And yeah, thanks mate. very much, guys. Cheers for listening, as always. And we hope to see you soon.